You're listening to Booth One. I hear that you're a bit of an insomniac. Do you sleep very much? Uh, I, I, I sleep when I can. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do in those cold wee hours of the morning when you're not sleeping? Is that when you get inspired? I often get inspired then uh, or drive myself more crazy, but I have a, a big file of things that I can think about. I never so. have any trouble sleeping. I sleep like a baby every night. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know what it's like to stay up all night. Uh, I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy Thanksgiving week. <laughs> Booth One friends, and welcome to episode 68. Gary Zabinski here, your host, and we're celebrating uh, the art of lively conversation. My guest today is a storyteller. Stefan Mazurik tells stories on screens, on stages, on buildings, in bathrooms, and on something called the World Wide Web. He is a director of photography, a still photographer, editor, director, and a production designer, and he's here today to share some stories about his work and life. Stefan, it's great to see you again, and welcome to Booth One. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, are you surviving this cold snap? It snowed yesterday. I love the cold. I <laughs> So, yes, well, I'm you're, you're dressed for it. it. Yes. Stocking cap on, a nice big woolly sweater. A, a big bald head needs some cover. It's like a furnace. You got to keep that heat in. Hey, you're, you're <laughs> preaching to the choir here, my friend. I should tell our listeners that uh, some of your clients as a director of photography include the Discovery Channel, the National Geographic Channel, BBC, HBO, the Travel Channel, Food Network, ESPN. You've worked for Siskel and Jacobs, Leopard Films, and, and many, many more. Your commercial clients for photography and spot work include Skittles. We'll talk about that piece that you did with Marshawn Lynch in a minute. Nikon. Target, Oscar Mayer, Johnson & Johnson, McDonald's, and Goo Gone. Goo Gone, yes. you, you did an ad campaign for Goo Gone? Just recently, yes. Do they have more than one product? Oh my gosh, yes. I had no idea. Now I have a, a small collection of Goo Gone products. And they, they all work, uh, too, which is great, so you're not faking it. So uh, other than the Goo Gone that most people know about, getting the sticky stuff from labels that you take off of merchandise that you've bought or something like that, what other products do they have? They, they have do? it for paint remover, for really? stuff removing, uh, for things that you don't know why they ended up in your bathroom. There's it's crazy. goo in your bathroom. And There's you goo in your goo. bathroom, yeah. <laughs> You need goo gone to yeah. do that. Uh, do, do you have a favorite product that you've helped to sell with your visual work? Now you, have all, these, now you yeah. have all these goo gone products for free, but... I, I guess the Skittles in a way, but it's a, a roundabout way to sell something. Let's talk about that Skittles campaign you did. You uh -huh. went with uh, Seattle Seahawks star Marshawn Lynch, and you went to a place called Houston, but it was Houston, Scotland, for uh, Super Bowl 51 promo uh, of his Skittles. He's famous for eating Skittles on the sidelines. Yeah, for the longest time, he didn't want to uh, even have anything to do with Skittles. He just liked Skittles, and he thought that he'd be selling out by working for them. And it took him a while to court them so that he would do it. And I, I think when he, when he first started in the league... Literally, when he would run onto the field, people would throw Skittles, Skittles at him. And it wasn't some genius marketing campaign. It was because dude is cool and he eats Skittles. <laughs> the dude is cool. <laughs> and in this ad campaign, this uh, spot that you filmed, he's riding a bicycle all over this small Scottish town called Houston. And uh, the Super Bowl that year happened to be in Houston, so it was a big tie-in. How did you find the people of Scotland? Were they receptive to this? Did they know what the Super Bowl was? Most of them kind of knew or acted like they, they knew. I don't think they really watched it, 
but uh, well, it's they, on they, it. They, they, they heard it's it. on it like two in the morning in right. Scotland or something like that. I think. And I think they still play several games a year over in London. So I mean, I know that it's not Scotland, but at the same time, I think the awareness is there. Well, it's a wonderful spot ad campaign, and he's fantastic in it. And so are all the Scottish people that he meets. Did you have a good time in Scotland? I had a very good time. He he's a wild man, and so you you don't know what uh, he might do or. It doesn't matter what you have planned. He's still going to do what he wants to do. And so that is his bike. He brought his bike over. He's really into biking. He almost was in a, in a wreck uh, by popping wheelies uh, in the middle of the streets. That Houston. would have been bad. That would have been bad. And uh, he swerved and missed a bus. And, you know, uh, everybody, yeah. of course, is freaking out that, 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 that something might go wrong. He's a, he's a natural, though. He can talk to anybody. Very, very funny. And he's, he's the real deal. That's, that's no acting there. Now, you grew up in Fairmont, West Virginia. West Virginia. You were born there. I was born there, yes. Sounds like a fairly rural part of the country. Did you do a lot of outdoor stuff growing uh, up? I did a, a little bit. I left when I was seven, and my father was never into the outdoors. And then we moved to a small town called Cuero, Texas, which is about 110 miles south southeast of San Antonio. That's why I got into the Boy Scouts, because my father, he didn't want to camp, he didn't want to hunt, he didn't want to fish. I wanted to do all those things, and I still do all of those things. So that was part of it. And we moved to Dallas, we moved to Baton Rouge, we moved around quite a bit. Yeah, a lot of your still photography is outdoor-oriented, I've noticed. You live here in Chicago now, uh, and you take a lot of photos around the city. Are you more interested in the landscape of, uh, of a look more so than, say, portraiture. We had Mark Hauser on the program mm. some episodes ago, and he's essentially a portraiture photographer. What is your approach to a good picture? What inspires you? Hmm. What inspires me? I promise you the questions get easier oh. as, as the dollar <laughs> figures go up. I get inspired by just walking around. I mean, I, I do feel that I see the world through a frame, whether it's a camera or something on stage. I mean, I, I do like framing things. But as far as inspiration goes, I, I feel that more that, that the world inspires me uh, and I take from that and then respond back as opposed to I sit down and Mm, I want to do this. I'm not an abstract or gray matter uh, photographer or artist. I respond to stimuli and I react to it. I think that if I have any talent or gifts, it's responding and how I respond. Have you always had a love of the visual arts? Were you interested in photography? Obviously, you were interested in the outdoors. But uh, where did your love of the visual arts really begin to take hold of you catholic mass <laughs> that's true me too <laughs> it's the you know certainly the theatricality it's the ultimate theater it is the ultimate theater i love being an altar boy i was an altar boy since second grade until they kicked me out and uh, i enjoyed it the pomp and circumstance uh, i love getting out of uh, class in seventh and eighth grade to go do the funerals because I was pious. And I remember other altar boys complaining and the, the priest would say, you're not as pious as Missouri is. <laughs> the, the, the widows, they love them. And so, yeah. you know, and, and, and I, I just like doing that. And so I think that's where a lot of that came from as far as the theatricality of life that I enjoy so much. Did you go to school in uh, in Texas as well? Were you trained in photography, or I've did you? I've never had a photography class in my life. Wow! What did you study in in college? Theater and European literature, nineteenth century. Nineteenth century European literature. Zola and Tolstoy. Those were my boys. <laughs> really? Yeah. So you've read all of Tolstoy, I assume. I've read most Pretty of much. Tolstoy, and not all of Zola. He was very prolific, but, but a fair bit. What, what did you want to do with that degree? I, I think at one point I thought maybe I'd be a teacher, or maybe it was just an excuse to read books. <laughs> that's, that's a good excuse. Go to college and take a literature course, and you'll be forced to read books. That's a very niche thing. Very niche. Most people, when I say it now, think that I'm pulling their leg, but... Come by my place, you can see some books on my shelf. Well, Stefan's skill set includes 
the ability to be present in difficult situations. I'm reading this off of your website now, uh-huh. where discretion, humility, and being a fly on the wall are as valued as just getting the shot. Tell me what that means, and tell me about one or two of those kinds of situations. I do a lot of documentary work, and so when I say documentary, I mean that I'm going to spend a substantial amount of time following a subject. A lot of the subjects that we're trying to tell stories about, I don't know, the, the, the circumstances are such where you have to be present, present in a way that you're watching something that, that, that is life-altering, uh, very dramatic, maybe even life and death. Uh, the stakes are high, and you have to be able to take it in, but at the same time, not insult the people that you're filming. Uh, so it's a fine line to to gain the trust of the people and persons that that you're trying to document, and so that they feel comfortable enough to forget that you're there, and so that the story that you're trying to tell never has anything to do with you. So and not everybody can do that. I'm not saying it in any kind of bragging way. It's hard to shut your mouth. It's hard to not show maybe exactly how you're feeling, whether that's terror or tears or angst. So those are things that I think that, that I've developed over the years, uh, I think partly coming out of a theater background too, of like how do you run a rehearsal room and how do you listen to your fellow actors and, or designers or your director. So listening is, is key. And so I, I think that the type of subjects that, that, that I've been attracted to and have been hired for asks for those kind of qualities. Let's talk for a moment about some of these documentaries that you have worked on. Tell us a little bit about these projects. For instance, Louder Than a Bomb. Louder Than a Bomb, yes. It's probably my favorite documentary that I've worked on, long-form documentary. We followed, uh, I think it was close to 10 different poets through the course of a school year as they prepared for the poetry competition Louder Than a Bomb. It's like a slam poetry competition where they, not necessarily where they're slamming each other, but you just get up there and you, you read your poetry or you recite your poetry? You recite your poetry. There's also group poetry as well. So you have the, the, the team aspect as well as the individual aspect. You work on various themes and subjects. They don't require themes or topics for the poetry. But just watching the, the kids in, evolve over the course of a year with their coaches and then coming together and then the community itself. And when I was first you know, pitched the idea for the documentary inside, I was like, come on, come on. <laughs> for how long? But uh, it, was, it was life-changing. It was just life-changing as far as the teachers and the coaches go and the kids from the various neighborhoods from Oak Park to the south side to the west side. Who we thought was going to win didn't win, but it ended up making it a better story. It was great. And, you know, you see these uh, young persons get crushed, pick themselves up, also to respond uh, overnight to things that happen, uh, like the local uh, mass shooting a few years back at the college. A young man brought in a poem reacting to that and to a, a list of other mass shootings that have happened in this documentary is already seven, eight years old. Mm. So we're still talking about the same thing. But no. anyway, that kind of immediacy that you're responding and, and, and just seeing how they work with uh, each other. And there's a lot of students helping each other. And then the, the overall community, it's very large. It's very encouraging and nurturing. And even though it is a competition, it's, it's a positive competition. So you followed these kids around for a year? Almost a year. I think it was like wow. nine, ten months, yeah. Not every day, you know, closer to the competition, but at least a couple of times a week seeing what was up yeah. and, and how they were progressing. Yeah. Uh, another documentary that you worked on was something called Love is a Verb. Tell us a little bit about this documentary. Love is is a verb. I spent almost a year, maybe a little longer than a year on that. I went to the Middle East, was in Turkey for about three months. I went to Somalia. I went to Iraq, Bosnia. Basically, the documentary was an effort to tell the story of Fatula Gulan. And Fatula Gulan is today in the news because Mike Flynn uh, was offered, so they say, $15 million to kidnap him and to bring him back to Turkey. 
So this film uh, was a way to introduce him or explain him to the West. And he's a very confusing figure, I think, for most Westerners because it's not your usual vertical structure for an organization. He's more of a person that inspires. I, I think this, I think that. And then you get inspired by his teachings and you go out and do something. Whether or not he was part of the, the coup last year back in Turkey, uh, I personally doubt that. But they have wanted him back uh, the current president of Turkey has turned on him and wants to blame him for that, and so they want to extradite him back. Where is he currently? He's in Western Pennsylvania now. Oh, is he? He's been there since uh, 2000. Supposedly, he left because of health reasons. Uh, he has a very weak heart. I think he's close to 80 now, but I think he left because they were going to probably hang him for something else. I see. Well, his name has been in the news um, because of the uh, Mike Flynn situation that you did mention. Sounds like you've been all over the world. You've traveled quite extensively in your capacity as a director of photography and a a photographer and and a theater artist. What's one of your favorite places? What's a place that you think that you could live if you had to leave Chicago? Northern Ireland. Why? My heart uh, slowed down in a way that it doesn't usually. So I've been to Ireland several times on jobs, uh, theater jobs as well as uh, DP jobs. But this summer I went and spent uh, eight days in Northern Ireland and I'd never been to Northern Ireland and drove around. The people I met, there was just something about the pace, the color the light that moved me in a different way. It made me feel more comfortable, and, and I have a little bit of Irish in me. There's uh, some sort of wayward crossing from really? Poland. Really? Yeah, because you and I are about as Polish as you get, Missouri, yeah. Zabinski, and I know that you've been to Poland uh, as well, but uh, you have a little bit of Irish in your background? A little bit of Irish in the background, yes. Uh, on my uh, mother's side, two generations back, yes. I've been looking at job adverts for Northern Ireland. Have you really? So I can't believe I just said that out loud. But yeah, it's serious enough to where I was like, I really like it here. And I didn't go there like trying to find a place to like, where do I want to end up? But there's something about Northern Ireland uh, that's calling me. And I know it has to do with the visual as well, but also to the people that I've met and and the pace Hopefully you'll get back there someday, and hopefully they'll they'll find you some work somewhere. (laughs) I'll be back. If you had to apply your talent and skills to only one aspect of storytelling through the visual arts, now this this is a hypothetical question because you do a lot of things, as I mentioned right at the top of the show. What might you choose? Would you choose photography or film or theater? You're a very well thought of theater artist in this town, but if you had to choose, which one would be your first love? Photography. Still photography. If I had to do it all again, I think I would only do photography. With photography, I know when I have it. Um, When I snap that frame, whether I'm outside or whether I'm taking someone's photo or a situation, I know that I have it. And I never know that making a documentary. Oh my gosh, I didn't see that uh, she was crying. I didn't see that he was bleeding from his elbow. I was looking over here when I should have been looking over there. I missed that. How do I cover up for that? Same thing with theater. Uh, I have four weeks. Okay. And then I only have $200. And I mean, all of these, these, yeah. these obstacles. And so, yeah, you do end up to a place because there's an opening night. And I, that's the one thing that I, I love about theater is there's an opening night and you have to be done. People who make documentaries, people who make films can take years to do it. And so that's a whole different ball game. I need more closure as a uh, creator and as a a camera person. It it, it just helps to know that, okay, we're done, we're moving on. And when you have to keep coming back and uh, overthink it, become too overcritical, 
But so definitely photography. You like the immediacy of the fact that you get the image. And as you say, I know I've got it. I know this is what I saw in my mind's eye and through the lens, and now I have it. Yeah, um, it's not always immediate, but at least I know with my relationship with the image that I have it. So there's something about that closure, and it is closure. Your business logo is a man on a bike with a film camera for a head. Let's tell the folks where they can go to see your work. Your website is uh, stephanmazurik.com, That's right? correct. That's yeah. S-T-E-P-H-A-N-M-A-Z-U-R-E-K. U-R-E-K. Again, couldn't be more Polish. <laughs> Congratulations. Did you come up with that logo yourself? I did. Did you draw it yourself? I didn't did draw it myself, but uh, I've had gave this, it an idea. this graphic uh, designer that I've traded photos with over the years for yeah. decades now. And he's designed several things for me. And uh, I said, are you ready? He said, I'm ready. <laughs> so I've talked to him on the phone. He goes, wow, I got it. Okay. And then literally two days later, he came up with that. It's a fantastic logo because it says just about everything about you. The, the silhouette, the fact that it's on a bicycle, so you travel and you'll go where the shot is or where the action needs to be. And again, this film camera for a head is really quite, quite astounding. I'm going to go back to your childhood a little bit. And I've asked this of other guests, and I'm always fascinated by the answer. What did you like to pretend when you were a child? Not what you wanted to be, but what you pretended when you were at play. Well, when I moved from West Virginia, I was seven years old, and I moved to this small town called Cuero, which uh, in the native language means raw hide. Several months after I got there, I got a horse. This town is less than... 14,000 people. The high school is the Quero Gobblers. <laughs> because uh, Quero, So why, wild turkeys in the... Well, it's considered to be the turkey capital of the world. That's the largest industry there. Every Thanksgiving, they march thousands of turkeys down Main Street. So when I got the horse, and it was literally, I mean, I just, I did whatever I wanted to in this little town. My parents, they didn't, you know, it was so small. I just went out and rode my horse and was out in the outside and, and going places and seeing things. I don't even know what I was doing. So I don't know if it was so much pretending as, as much as it was exploring, being able to get out and just look around. And I'm not sure what it was I was looking for. Uh, and it wasn't like playing cowboys or Indians or anything, but uh, I, you could ride your horse through town. <laughs> you could ride outside of town. It only took you a quarter of a mile and you were outside and on the trails and stuff. So I think that that sense of exploring. So was I pretending I was an explorer? I don't think I was pretending. I think I was exploring. I'm guessing that you tried to stay upwind of the turkey farms. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to digress here just a second. We do a segment on the show called Good Times and Bum Times. I'm going to read something about the bum time first. A bumbling armed robber, and I'd love to get your take on this, who allegedly held up his former workplace was arrested after his old colleagues recognized him. This is fantastic. Police said that Cleveland Willis was wearing a ski mask when he entered the KFC where he used to work and demanded that employees empty the register. One of them recognized the robber's eyes and voice and asked, Cleveland, is that you? And Cleveland responded, no, it's not me. <laughs> Before driving off in his Nissan Altima, the same car he used to take to work. Wow. Well, he was arrested soon after. Criminals are not the smartest. I guess he figured, I know the layout so well. I, this is the perfect crime. In the good times category, and this is good times for me. It may not be good times for everybody, but if you're walking across the street in Honolulu, you want to put your phone away these days. A, a recent law went into effect, making it illegal for a pedestrian to be looking at his screen while crossing the street. It's meant to keep pedestrians' eyes up and on the road. This is one of my pet peeves. You're on the streets a lot in Chicago. You're walking around a bit. Does it annoy you as much as it annoys me that people are not aware of the worlds out here? It's an epidemic. I mean, I mean we've gone too far. I think that phones, when they're moving, should stop working. 
Same thing with with the car. I mean, you know, there has to be an app or something to where if the, the, the type of motion that's in a car, it just shuts down. Why can't we do that? It ha- there has to be something out there just to shut it down because I think people are unable to do it. And it's not just young persons anymore. I've seen geriatrics on their phones at lights and at crossing the streets as well. I think there was almost a dozen or more deaths in downtown Chicago of people walking out and getting hit by cars. And, you know, whose fault is that? Well, I think it it's partly the fault of the person holding the phone. Yeah, although pedestrians always have the right of way, sometimes they will step out in front of someone who j- just can't stop. And According- maybe you're no longer a pedestrian if you're engaged with your rectangle. Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe not. Well, this is thought to be the first law of its kind in any major city, and it's thanks to people in the very age group that gets a bad rap for always staring down at their screens. Teenagers, as you say, it's not just teenagers, it's a lot of people. I tend to walk straight at them. It's like playing chicken. Fines in Honolulu start at $15 and go as high as $99 for a third-time offense in the same year. Well, here's, this is, yes, two Chicago leaders uh, want you to pay up if you're texting or talking on phones. And to enforce the proposed ordinance, Chicago police would hand out tickets with a fine. Here's your idea. Anywhere from $90 to $500. That's an awful lot of money to pay for staring at your phone. I categorize this as a good time because I think it's good news and I think it's good for all pedestrians and just everybody who lives in the city. It it just makes common sense. Uh, You have kids. Uh, Are your kids addicted to the screen? Do you run a tight ship with that kind of thing? I tried to run a tight ship. (laughs) Tried. But I lost. I see. um, uh, My daughter received her first phone two years ago, and I regret, I still regret it. And there used to be a joke that I wasn't gonna get her a phone until she was 18, and the more she protested, I think at one time we were up to 24 years old that I was gonna get her a phone. Ended up losing it, and 24. now- 24. 24, yeah. That's pr- practically old age for someone to get a phone. Well, I know, but I think some children are, are more able to handle having a phone than other children. My son went through a brief period of not responding to my texts. So I called up T-Mobile and I said, uh, I want to turn off one of my lines. She said, excuse me? I said, I need to get my son's attention. He's not returning my text. Will you turn off the line? She goes, my pleasure. (laughs) And then she says, it's off. I said, thank you. Of course, in less than five minutes, there's some unidentified number calling me. Right? <laughs> and I just let it ring. I let it go to voicemail. It rang again. And of course, it was my son. Something's wrong with my phone. I said, yeah, I turned it off. Wow. I've never had a problem with him returning my texts after that. I mean, that was like seven, eight years ago, but it yeah. worked. It's not just the phone. Now for me, it's the Snapchat. And, and, and I'm a visual person. That's my whole MO. Yeah. So I get it, but the obsession of taking these selfies and then altering them and then sending them to one another uh, over and over and over again as a way of communicating versus texting maybe back and forth it's just become these banal images i don't fully understand the attraction to all of that it's not something that i get very much involved in and i don't have any children so i don't have (laughs) half your problems you're quoted as saying participating in the act of theater is not for sissies (laughs) And this again from your website, you might show up with a head full of ideas and a notebook of visuals, but that doesn't mean, well, I'll just say it, that doesn't mean shit when you have, say, Joan Allen on stage. You likened the experience to croquet. It's all fine and dandy until someone gets hurt. You've done quite a lot of theater work. What do you mean that the act of theater is not for sissies? Well, I think how you embrace theater. And and since I'm a uh, a peripheral theatrical practitioner, I I don't make a living by it. So when I do decide to engage in theater, I want to throw myself completely in. 
I think I've done three or four shows with Tina Landau at Steppenwolf. If I would would have worked with more people on her, not, I don't want to just say caliber, but her demand from the room, the actors, the designers, I think maybe I would have spent more time in theater because I've never worked or been around someone that asks so much. And though she asks so much, she will respond to what you give her. So when I said those comments, it was coming out of a, a, a Tina show as well. And I think the stakes are high. I love being challenged. I don't want to do uh, just create pretty pictures for a backdrop. I think anybody can do that. But let's ask more of the projection departments. And uh, the last couple of shows, uh, like Fundamentals, uh, there was commercials involved, and there were cultural films, and just w ways to think about doing projections that aren't just scenery. So with the sissies, I think that when the stakes are high, it's not for sissies. It's not for the weak of heart. That's true. And it's someone like Tina who's going to demand and, and let you go maybe an hour before opening night. I like that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm up if you and, and it's not like she's doing it because she can. She's doing it because she's not finished. Uh, that energy that by endurance we conquer uh, that Latin phrase. That's how I want to do my theater. I love doing original work in most of my decisions uh, the last five, six years when I do decide to be a theater practitioner is original work because once again, the stakes are high and there's a lot to think about. Tina Landau is currently working on SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical, which yeah. played here in Chicago a year or so ago, yeah, maybe uh, a little a bit more. Yeah, not this past summer, but the summer before. I saw it. And is uh, opening on Broadway this season, and I wish her great luck. Uh, she's been working on this project a long time, and as you said, she asks a lot. She does. You've been working in Chicago theater uh, on and off for quite some time, since the early or mid-'80s. What do you think has changed the most on the Chicago theater scene since, say, 1985. We had a, a gentleman named Mark Larson on the show who's writing a book. In fact, it should be published any minute now. I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath where he interviewed just about every theater person in Chicago and not in Chicago as well to get a chronicle, a firsthand chronicle from actors, producers, directors, comedians, Anybody who took Chicago as their place to plant themselves and make theater. And he was just fascinating uh, about the history of theater from the 50s with the Compass Players and Mike Nichols and Paul Sills all the way through up until the present day. In your experience, what, what's been the most significant changes in the Chicago theater scene since you've begun? Well, I certainly feel there's a larger variety of types of theater. That's just not the Steppenwolf School or the Goodman classics. Things have evolved. Um, and I think there's been different shifts and turns in the theater scene over the years. And I think, too, with social media, it makes it a lot different now because marketing, you know, in the 80s and 90s with no social media, word of mouth. I mean, your friends, your acquaintances, the people you work with, that was everything. And the newspaper, where we really depended upon, you know, critics to help get the word out. Well, that's not the case anymore. I mean, I think it could be argued that there'll be a time when we won't need critics. It'll be the theaters with the, with the most. Shut your mouth. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I mean, I hope it doesn't come to that. I mean, I do think that they, 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 they serve, serve a, a great purpose. Well, there's so much to see, and there's so, much, so yeah. many theater companies all doing really quality work. You can hardly get to all of them. And as you, as you say, I, I think I agree with you. The variety of the kinds of theater uh, and the kinds of performance pieces that you can see in Chicago on any given night or day... On a high level. Is, is remarkable. On, mm -hmm. a, on a high level, as you say. I think you're very uh, on point with uh, that being the evolution of what's happened with theater in Chicago. I think, though, too, for me, at least, I love going to the theater because I like sitting in a room with people. Same thing going to the movies. I, I can watch a movie on, you know, my flat screen TV, but I choose most of the time not to. I want to go to the theater. I want to sit in a dark room. There's something about being in a room 
with other people that you don't know, some sitting right next to you, some not, that changes it. So there's a communal response, which I think the world has gotten away from as we've become more isolated and, and, and more obsessed with our, our little uh, rectangles. And to have that, that communal experience, I think there's going to be a move back to it, or at least I hope so. What have been some of your favorite theater experiences? I've got two or three that stay with me always uh, that I'll never, ever probably forget images from. I saw a production company called The Comedians outside of Barcelona in the early 90s. You were bussed out to a field. There were some bleachers out there, and you sat around for a while, and then these uh, people started riding in on horses and running in, and it was a whole night of theater. It was one of the most life-changing events and it was from like eight or whenever it got dark until the early morning and then other people would come in it was in the middle of nowhere they had some food my spanish is is poor it didn't matter i'll, I'll never forget that it just you know out in the middle of a field you can wow. change the world or and it went on all until night daylight. yeah and could you follow the storytelling um Pretty much. just by the visuals and yes. you know your your working knowledge of spanish yeah that's cool. I had a similar experience when I was in Germany working. I went to Hamburg and went to the State Theater there, and they were doing a production of Chekhov's Platonov, which you don't very often see. And of course, it was all in German, and I did not really speak the language. I could pick out a word here or there. But I was so overwhelmed by the visual storytelling that I could figure out pretty much what was going on. Now, certainly I probably missed some nuances because of the language issue, but the images from that piece stay with me to this day. I've seen, I think it's, I think I'm up to 25 Nutcrackers I've seen, and I've seen 14 in Hamlets, but I saw Daniel Day-Lewis perform in Hamlet with Judy Dench. And it was about a week before he just dropped out. And that was an amazing production because not knowing that he was getting ready to have a nervous breakdown or, or whatever, the, all the reasons why he left, you could tell that it was out of control, that, that his portrayal or what was happening to him was like, whoa, what's going on? I mean, it, was, it had this, and it wasn't like, oh my God, he was an amazing Hamlet. It was like Hamlet took him over. So I never forgot uh, that. And then one other one was the Chekhov. Seagull. Seagull. It was with uh, Jonathan Price and Vanessa Redgrave. Ah. That would have been mid-'80s, but the way that they interacted with one another was the most physical I'd ever seen two actors before. So there was something that was amazing about that in, in the sort of some of the Steppenwolf way. Isn't it amazing uh, what stays with you? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going to affect you in, in uh, a profound way at any time. We're, we're going to a play tomorrow that I don't really know very much about. It's in a, one of the small off-loop theaters. And who knows? I could walk away from that a, a changed person. I could have a cathartic experience. You never know when you plunk yourself you down. I was asked to ask you about something. Uh-oh. You did a show... Or you used to do a show called Sydney Dummy at Large. <laughs> and Sydney was a, was it a ventriloquist dummy? That's correct. Where is Sydney these days? What's happening with Sydney? And what was that show about? Sydney Dummy at Large was a play, it was my first play that I wrote. <laughs> and what came first, the, the, uh, the play or the dummy, in this case, the dummy came first. Uh, I literally... Uh, saw him in a window on Howard Street in a secondhand store. And he kept looking at me every time I passed him by. And then I went in and I bought him. And I'm not sure why I bought him. I was never into ventriloquist dummies. I never wanted to be a ventriloquist. Then I started writing this play. He, he just took over. And uh, this play was basically, he was uh, kind of like a Jean Le Carré character, a fallen spy, and um, <laughs> he was running around in uh, Afghanistan and stuff. And so when the play starts, he's paralyzed from the neck down. So the, 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 the ventriloquist, the, the dummy is actually operated from behind, and the only thing he can move around 
is his neck, and then he's being interrogated by a, another puppet that can move his hands and, and, and what have you, and then there's a big screen behind there as he's being interrogated. We find out what happened to Sydney through these uh, visuals. Doesn't sound like a comedy to me. There was a few funny parts, but <laughs> for the most part. Well, the ventriloquist dummy yes. paralyzed from the neck down is funny in itself. Yeah. I had a costume designer uh, literally take him apart and put malleable copper in there so I could have him stand up and do all of these things that I had him do in the images. So they could stand up and he could move his hands or he could take a knife and he could stab somebody. Wow. And it, was, it was a lot of fun. Where yeah. is Sydney now? Most people find him to be pretty disturbing. He has a deteriorated face that I didn't deteriorate. I, I, I found him like that. So I keep him in a very special suitcase. It sounds like a Anthony Hopkins movie from the <laughs> 80s. I forget, right, the, I forget the name of that. I forget yeah. the name as well. Yeah. Our listeners will know immediately, and I'll be getting letters. <laughs> so he's in a box someplace. Uh, is, is Sydney going to make a reappearance someday? Have you? I bet you've thought about I've it. Th- I've thought about it. I did introduce him to my daughter maybe four or five years ago, and she loved him. I have these great shots. You know, she's like seven at the time, and she's got him up next to him. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. It's you, kind of creepy. But to her, her reaction to it wasn't one of terror. It was just like, oh, look at this, and I'm going to hold this. And so when you see her acting that way to this, when you, once you see yeah. his face, it's, yeah. that's quite the uh, contrast. Yeah. What are you working on now? Are you involved or about to be involved in any theatrical projects, or do you have a documentary or something um, in, in the wings? Uh, what's, what's a project that you're up to now? We're going to remount Faceless at St. Louis Rep from Northlight Theater in January, so that's on the immediate horizon. And did you do projections for that? I did projections for that, and I'm trying to complete a, a, a film script I've been working on. Really? Yes. A fiction film? A fiction film, yes. So in addition to all of those things I said earlier, you're also a writer. Well, I've written a few things, yes. It's the hardest thing that I've ever tried to do. I mean, I've done a lot of different things in my life, but putting pen to paper or tapping those keys, there's nothing more difficult. Writing is the is the hardest thing. I'm a firm believer of not jinxing it. I've, I've gotten along pretty far uh, about not talking about it, but I'm getting close to the end. Well, when I'm, it's done, I will talk about I'm it. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you now. I, I do have to do a little shameless plug for the show. If you like what you're hearing on Booth One, you can support our efforts in bringing you the finest in the art of lively conversation and scintillating guests like Stefan Mazurk by going to our website at www.booth-one.com and click the Donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax-deductible, and any contribution would, of course, be greatly appreciated. Before we get to our final segment, Stefan, which we do every week, I wanted to go back just a moment to your documentary work, and specifically the Love is a Verb uh, piece that you worked on. When you're in a foreign country and you're dealing with people who speak very diverse languages that you don't know. What's the experience like? Do you have interpreters? Obviously, there's no script in a documentary. Tell me a little bit about those experiences. Well, it's a a, a great question. After I went to Iraq, the the production wanted to go to Somalia, and uh, I was having an issue with the interpreter. We were near, uh, this is while we were still in Turkey, and uh, we were near the Syrian border. I felt that these guys weren't being up front with me. And I was the only person that, that spoke English. I, I don't speak any other language well, speak a little Polish, a little Spanish. I could tell that they were lost. And I kept asking the main person that I was connected to, are we lost? No, 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 no. We're, we're not lost. A little bit further. I mean, we're really close to the steering board. I could see the way that people were looking at them. I made them stop the bus. I raised my voice. Are we lost? They had this little powwow back and forth, the three of them. <laughs> oh, dear. And then he said to me, not lost. More like, you know, how a woman is sometimes pregnant. What? (laughs) Exactly. And that was when I decided that I would not go to Somalia with this interpreter. 
and that we were going back. I said, that's it. I'm not filming anything else. We can go back. I just shut down. I knew that if they were going to lie to me about being lost, then it didn't matter what was being said. So I renegotiated with them. I said, I don't want an interpreter. I want a translator. I want someone who's going to say exactly what I'm saying. I don't want someone to interpret what it is I'm saying because he thinks that you want to hear that. So I was able to pick the uh, translator that we, I ended up going with to Somalia. In Somalia, I was asked never to speak in public and to wear Turkish clothes and to not shave and to wear this tribal headpiece, but never to say anything and to wear sunglasses. I followed all of those directions. But the difference between an interpreter and a translator is huge. And you can tell the really good ones because they're rhythmically with you and they're not restating it for you, which is what the problem was before. So you're only as good as your translator. I will remember that next time I'm in a foreign country, the difference between interpreters and translators. Well, I'm glad you're safe. I'm yes. glad you have had the experiences to go to those parts of the world and come back virtually unscathed, I would think. You don't, you don't seem scathed in any way. Not on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, usually end our podcasts with a segment uh, I like to call the kiss of death. Oh, um, wow. Now, this is a, just a profile of someone who has passed that we celebrate their life. Are you, like me, a fan of crossword puzzles? You seem like a word guy. A little bit. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> You're not a cruciverbalist? I'm not. I'm not. An aficionado or creator of crosswords? I just lost a, my favorite relative, an aunt who uh, was 92. Her name was Jean Clark avid crossword puzzleist, So it made me think as I was going through her things with her daughter about maybe, uh, it's just one more thing to add to my pile of things to do, I guess, when I have insomnia, <laughs> is now I can start working on crosswords. Yeah, when puzzles. you're up in the middle of the night, you know, grab right. yourself a crossword. I've been doing crosswords for years and years and years. I've got to the point where I only do the really hard ones these days because I I'm not challenged so much by the daily wow. ones in the Tribune, for sure, or other papers. So Sunday New York Times? Sunday New York Times, for sure. That's kind of fun to do. Friday and Saturday New York Times are, ooh, they can be devilish. I've gone back into the archives a little bit to pull this story because uh, I was doing a crossword the other day, in fact, mm -hmm. the Sunday New York Times crossword last weekend, and I came across a clue that, well, it stumped me. And I remembered this person, so I'd like to talk about her for just a few minutes. Frances Hansen wrote poetry across and down. She was a self-described housewife who marshaled imagination and not malice, even though you can get really mad at the people who make these really hard puzzles. To make crossword puzzles, she constructed more puzzling by using her own poems as clues. Well, th that's diabolical. The New York Times published 82 of Mrs. Hansen's puzzles. She had written every Christmas puzzle since 1995 and become the second most prolific living writer of Sunday puzzles and the fourth most published of all time. Will Shorts... Damn well, Shorts. The New York Times crossword puzzle editor said Mrs. Hansen caused a sensation with her first puzzle in the paper in December of 1964. The puzzle was built around Lewis Carroll's 1872 book, Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, and it required potential solvers to think backward. I'm so glad I wasn't around in 1964 to be challenged by this puzzle. The clue was, quote, a well-known part of Jabberwocky, the poem Jabberwocky, except Jabberwocky is spelled backwards. And the answer was, quote, and the Mome Rath's Outgrabe. You know that Lewis Carroll created his own words and his own phrases and his own types of mm -hmm. uh, language uh, in, in Jabberwocky especially. But that answer was to be spelled out backwards as well in the puzzle. Uh, Lewis's penchant for making up words like Jabberwocky, of course, didn't make it any easier. 
Her original limericks, this is again Frances Hansen, became her best-known trademark. A former editor of the New York Times puzzles at first questioned the originality of the poems because they were so good, but Mrs. Hansen assuaged the editor's doubt by sending her clippings of little poems she had printed in Good Housekeeping and other magazines. One of Will Shorts' favorite limericks goes like this. Said W. Somerset Maugham, I shall visit the island of Guam. If I find it is hot, I shall leave on the spot. I detest feeling overly warm. (laughs) (laughs) Frances Mabel Tucker was born in June of 1919 in Arlington, New Jersey. She never attended college, nor took any special courses. Helene Hovannik, the author of a book on crossword puzzle constructors called Creative Cruciverbalists, said that Mrs. Hansen taught Sunday school for 12 years and noticed that when she quit teaching, all of her friends were addicted to the Sunday New York Times puzzle. That's what they did in the morning when they, well, I guess after church. Mrs. Hansen followed suit and soon became addicted and hit upon the unlikely idea that constructing puzzles might be easier than doing them because you knew all the answers. <laughs> Woe betide anybody who thinks that. She was disabused of this notion when the Times summarily rejected her first puzzle for mistakes common to novice puzzle constructors like using two-letter words, not a good thing, and having a very high word count. Well, eight months later, her next one was accepted. Will Shorts said she went on to perfect her speciality within the rigor of the Times 21 by 21 squares. Part of the challenge is to keep the black squares symmetrical, Hmm. A tradition started because she thought they looked pretty that way. <laughs> hmm. She usually writes an original verse with five lines, and each line is exactly 21 letters, Mr. Short said. Perfect rhyme and perfect meter, and it's funny besides. In 1987, Mrs. Hansen told the Washington Post that puzzles come to her in her sleep. She said hmm. they were left by the idea fairy. <laughs> So you should get more sleep, and maybe the idea fairy will help you finish that screenplay. Frances Hansen was 85, creator of Crossword Puzzles for the New York Times. Does this make you want to grab the New York Times tomorrow? Do you do the Sunday puzzle? It does. Yeah. It does. As my friend Robbie Young always says, stupid Will Shorts. (laughs) Because as the editor, mostly what he does is take the answers and create harder clues for them. When people are doing crossword puzzles or just beginning to do crosswords, especially the hard ones or puns and anagrams, which are very challenging, I always say to them, there's not a single word in this crossword puzzle that you don't know. Now, that may not be true 100% of the time, but 99.9% of the time, every word in that puzzle, once it's finished, you know in some way The problem is figuring out what the clue is trying to steer you towards. And sometimes you have to read the clue in a way that is upside down, sideways, backwards, or using puns or something like that. But yeah, there's not a word in those crosswords that you don't know. Do you agree? I agree. (laughs) Stefan, thank you so very much for being my guest today. My Uh, pleasure. You were fantastic. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you had a long drive to get here and a long drive back. Uh, you can see video and still photography by Stefan at stefanmazurik.com. Remind our listeners again. And like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. For Booth One and my guest, Stefan Mazurik, this is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening. Dovizenia. Dovizenia.